how, how does PSSD work on a cellular biochemical way? Uh, it's complicated, clearly. We've done ultrasounds on these folks of their genitalia, of their penis. And, and, rem and remember, I'm a radiologist, so I like physics and I like objective information. Um, their tissue is not normal at all. Um, so a normal, healthy young man, their penile tissue should be homogenous. Their smooth muscle, everything should be homogenous. Symmetric, you know. Um, these people have fibrosis. Um, there's areas of fibrosis. Of scarring is another term. It's not just scarring. It's it's scarring the entire shaft essentially of the penis. The people that I'm looking at are 70% of them are less than 30. They don't have diabetes. They don't have hypertension. They're a 25 year old guy, and so their penis looks like an 80 year old diabetic who's smoked, who's smoking, and is obese and has hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Okay, so I'm really excited to be joined by Ahad today, and uh, he's a PSSD researcher, and it's actually the first researcher aside from David Healy, who I've been lucky enough to, to speak to. Um, I'm he has a, a, a long uh, list of scientific credentials and, um, and he's working with uh, Dr. Goldstein's group out at uh, San Diego Sexual Medicine where they're reviewing charts of people with PSSD and they're contributing to the research literature in um, putting together diagnostic criteria for this condition. So uh, we're going to talk uh, all things PSSD today and I'm specifically going to be talking about the diagnosis of PSSD and how to recognize it and um, all that useful clinical information. So Ahad, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Maybe just start by telling, uh, telling the audience a little bit about uh, your, your background and, um, and, and how you came to be interested in this problem. Sure. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me. My name is Dr. Ahad Warich. Um, give you my educational background. I was a biology major at the uh, University of Chicago. Uh, I have a medical degree from the Johns Hopkins um, School of Medicine, and I have a master's in public policy degree from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Um, through my, you know, at Hopkins and Harvard, you uh, get connected to a lot of different folks. Um, and through the grapevine, I, I heard about Dr. Goldstein, who was actually originally in Boston before he went to San Diego. Uh, and he's well known in urology, um, in the urology community everywhere, including Hopkins and Harvard. He's held in very um, high esteem. Um, and uh, I was looking for research, uh, to do some research after my med school before I started my residency. And um, he was doing research on uh, basically iatrogenic, iatrogenic effects. Um, he's mm -hmm. done research in uh, post-finasteride syndrome, uh, which is not necessarily the topic of discussion, but that's also a, a, a syndrome that he has, he has kind of led the, led the research in. Um, and so he was also uh, looking into another uh, post-drug syndrome, so to speak, called uh, post, um, you know, PSSD, post-estherized sexual dysfunction. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a radiological component to it, um, which I'll get to. Um, and I'm actually right now a radiology resident. Um, and so there was a radiological component to this, which fascinated me, um, which no one has done research on uh, in terms of this condition. Um, and so I, and he's a charismatic person, and I felt this would be a good project. And uh, uh, I've been working on it for a number of years now. Yeah. And... Um... I think it's, you know, something that I'm always interested in. And, you know, I know Dr. Goldstein is very respected, but I would say he's at odds with uh, health regulators, you know, uh, governing institutions and things like that. So wh what, what's that been like, well, you know, um, to, to be on a team with someone very well respected in academia who is kind of sounding the alarm on PFS, PSSD and such, and, and, and for that to be at odds with what you know, what I guess the rest of the established medical profession is saying? Uh, well, Dr. Goldstein's whole career has been one of revolutionizing thought. Yeah. Um, he himself, you know, was had there, you know, he always jokes about the fact that, you know, he never thought there'd be a pill for erectile dysfunction. Uh, and then he ended up being the, one of the main people on the New England Journal of Medicine on the Viagra research. Wow. So, you know, I mean, this is how science works. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's certain, there's, um, there's certain thoughts about how things work. Uh, you know, his argument was, uh, you know, a pill would be systemic. How can we don't want to lower, you know, blood pressure everywhere? And how will that work? Well, we didn't know that there was, you know, something that was specific to 
you know, tissue-specific uh, entities, right? I mean, that was very surprising. And now it's just common sense. Mm-hmm. You know, every, every pre-med, every bio-major knows this. Um, and so, yeah, um, there, you know, he has an extensive career. I can't even begin to talk about all of the things he's done. But yes, um, he's someone who very passionately um, believes that the point of medicine is to help patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if what patients are saying or what they're showing, both objectively and subjectively, is at odds with the current established medical understanding of things, um, then we need to investigate further. Um, you know, he's been at the forefront of uh, women's sexual dysfunction in terms of uh, phlebanserin and those drugs. Many people thought, you know, that was nothing, that wasn't even a real uh, condition. Um, and yet now we have two drugs, actually, Bilisi and um, phlebanserin, um, mm-hmm. in a, for a condition that many people felt was not even real. And uh, those two drugs are doing well. Um, and uh, Dr. Goldstein believes that science is about analyzing and uh, revamping our understanding constantly. So um, mm-hmm. it's been a great experience with him um, because, you know, I've seen both sides of the coin. I mean, I was at Hopkins. I mean, you talk about the medical establishment. I mean, Johns Hopkins is obviously the leader in medicine. But even at Johns Hopkins, yes, there were doctors who were old school and go by the book. But there were doctors there, too, who were, I mean, it's the number one research institution in the world because they believe that we need to constantly update our guidelines. Um, and so there are folks at all institutions, some of, you know, in the old guard and some who want to constantly research and do things. Um, some are more public than others in their fight, I would say. Um, but uh, I've seen both sides of the coin. I think there's value. Um, you know, we shouldn't be skeptical, skeptical of every single thing immediately. You know, we have to, you know, be reasonable in our skepticism, if that makes sense. Um, so I've seen it both at, at Hopkins and at Harvard, um, and Dr. Goldstein certainly represents the type who says, you know, let's be skeptical of things and let's try to challenge things if we have enough data and enough evidence. Okay. Um, and, and, and he has challenged it, and I know that, that the group is supportive of, of PSSD, and I think now's probably a, a good time um, to get your perspective on, on, on this. So, so from the research that you've done with his group... How, how do you define PSSD? What, you know, um, because at least from what I've seen, you know, it's there's lots of people not on SSRIs who are com- claiming to have PSSD, and it seems to be this kind of big umbrella for sexual dysfunction with psychiatric medications. And I was just wondering if you could yeah. kind of share your thoughts on, like, like what, like what is PSSD uh, technically? Has it just become this big label for, for all of these things? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so um, with the caveat that obviously definitions are further refined sure. you know, constantly based on research, but I would say that my basic understanding and the, and the basic core definition in the literature um, is PSSD is an iatrogenic condition um, from SSRIs and SNRIs uh, in which a patient develops sexual dysfunction. Um, we can talk about sort of the uh, nuances in a second, um, but there's some key things in that statement. One, it's iatrogenic. It's from the drug. So now it's not sexual dysfunction from, um, you know, a depressive disorder, from a psychiatric disorder, um, from, from it's not a psychogenic induced sexual dysfunction. Um, and that's very key, uh, as we'll talk about. Um, you know, SSRIs, SNRIs are obviously the main class that we're talking about. Um, and the other component to this and the other part of the definition that's absolutely essential is that it's, it, it persists or it stays or it happens even when the drug, even when the patient is not taking the drug anymore. And that's the key component. Um, and uh, I was going to say persist because the, the majority or the vast majority actually of patients, you know, they take SSRI, SNRI, it's very well known and accepted in the medical community that, you know, sexual dysfunction is a common side effect of SRIs while mm-hmm. on the drug. That's not really disputed. I mean, that's part of our step one exam sure. in, in, in our board. That, no, no one debates that. People may debate the prevalence is at 40% or 30% or 50% or whatever. But the fact that it's a side effect, no one really disputes that. It's one of the most common, if not the most common side effect. But the interesting thing about this is that PSSD is post-SSRI. That's what the P stands mm-hmm. for meaning that you're off the drug, so you take, you know, Lexapro or whatever, SSRI, you know, you develop sexual dysfunction while on the drug, you stop the drug, and yet your sexual dysfunction is still there. It doesn't go away. The traditional, conventional understanding um, is that you take the drug, 
you may have a side effect like sexual dysfunction, but once you stop the drug, the side effects yes. should go away. Um, that is that is the conventional wisdom. That is still, I would say, what you know most people think, most clinicians think. That's how you know we're taught in med school. Um, but uh, this is saying um, that no, there are some people for whom this sexual dysfunction uh, persists. Um, and for those, we say it's post-SSRI or SNRI sexual dysfunction. I will give just one little caveat. There are a few, a few patients, um, although uh, you know it's a minority, um, certainly, where they say they didn't have sexual dysfunction during the drug, but then they developed after um, you know, they discontinued it. Um, I would say there would be more research needed into that particular field, um, into that particular cohort, I would say, because even the charts that I've reviewed, um, I can't give you an exact number, but I would have to look back. Uh, but the vast majority is where it persists. They, they developed a sexual dysfunction while on the drug, and then it persisted after discontinuation. And that is the, the traditional, conventional sort of definition of PSSD since it was first brought to the literature in 2006. You know, in, in so there's, yeah, I think... Uh, you know, it'd be interesting to, to hear more of those stories. Uh, you know, when, I, when I've when i heard that, it, it makes me think of tardive dyskinesia, which is the other persistent problem. And another interesting exactly. thing about TD is uh, TD can appear for the first time during drug withdrawal. And um, that seems really unusual as well. But that, I think that is uh, right. recognized. So at least there's an analogy within another drug class of a persistent neurological problem only occurring uh, upon withdrawal. But I guess right now we need more cases before we can say that's um, seems to be consistent with the PSSD folks. Yeah, yeah. Right. That would be a, that would be a good analogy for those who who argue that you can develop PSSD uh, even you know during withdrawal, basically that you don't have to have the dysfun dysfunction during the drug. I would just I would say though that the majority of patients are the more I, I developed a dysfunction on the drug and it persists even after discontinuation, months, years. Uh, after you know, ten years. So I'm going to be picky a little bit here. I, I know you mentioned specifically SSRIs and SNRIs. What what about some of the tricyclics as well? Because there's a lot of very serotonergic tricyclics out there. Things like clomipramine. Um, do you um, was that were they purposefully left out? I guess of the definition, or is it just yeah? How, yeah what, what about those folks out there? Because I know there are, I've spoken to some of them who have say they're, they're experiencing right. something similar following uh, tricyclic use. Yeah, I would say that um, I think for the, for the papers that I've read, um, you know, they have generally limited to SRIs, SNRIs, um, and including our research from just the get-go, because we were just basing it on that definition, we chose patients who were on SSRIs and SNRIs. Um, but that, that does beg the question from a you know biochemical perspective, why would another serotonergic drug like a TCA or, or something else not cause a similar, um, similar sort of effect? And it's certainly possible. Um, I just personally, you know, we sort of made that definition, or not made the definition, we kind of followed the original definition um, from the get-go in our research. So it would be a good question, and this could be further research, um, to ask Dr. Goldstein about, you know, if he has patients who are on TCAs. Yeah, yeah. as um, I spoke yeah. to someone on the podcast um, several months ago, uh, Carlton, who had, who had taken, I think it was clomipramine or, or something like that, or imipramine, and he, he had, had yeah. a reaction like that. Um, you know, I've heard anecdotally stories of people who have said that they've experienced similar things on the other antidepressants things like, uh, well, butrin and also things like metazapine, which start to kind of veer a little bit because we don't typically think of those drugs as being very serotonergic. I know there's always cascades of different effects that happen with the drugs, but I, I do see PSSD yeah. being used as the term for persistent sexual dysfunction on those drugs, which are not classically thought of to be highly serotonergic. Um, what, um, what, what are your thoughts on, 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 on that? Um, I would say, you know, at this point, it's sort of this research and the research that's been done has been based of on patient, you know, what patients are saying, right? So, you know, a bunch of patients with SSRIs, uh, you know, reported this and then Dr. David Healy and a few others 
um, you know, start reporting this. And then it was, okay, it's not just SSRIs, also SNRIs, let's add that one. I mean, the original definition was just post-SSRI. Yeah. It didn't even have SNRIs. And then, and then it was like, well, certainly SNRIs, and that also makes sense. I mean, um, but, but SNRIs should be added. Um, and obviously that's, you know, SSRIs, SNRIs are the, the majority of antidepressants this day and age. Um, but remember, we're not, we're not like studying sure. mice here, right? We're not, we don't really know the exact biochemical pathway in which all of this is happening. Um, and so in terms of, you know, there are different theories, obviously, you know, there's, are the receptors desensitized, uh, you know, permanently, are there epigenetic changes? Is there some sort of combination of serotonin, dopamine sort of dysregulation? I mean, these, all these theories, there's a great paper um, comparing by Dr. Mulcanji comparing PFS and PSSD. And obviously finasteride is, you know, a very different, uh, or ostensibly, I should say, a different yeah. you know, completely drug class, everything. Um, but, he, he, you know, and again, he was proposing mechanisms, uh, but he was like, you know, is there some commonality between PFS and PSSD? And we don't know. I mean, to be honest, I mean, we need more research. And so I would say, you know, are these, you know, how much commonality does PFS, PSSD have on a biochemical level? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Um, I think in terms of, I think the general idea, which is what you're getting at, is absolutely crucial, is that the idea of post-drug, quote-unquote, syndromes, um, and, you know, tardive dyskinesia is the one thing that, you know, again, we get taught that in med school. Mm -hmm. That's not really disputed anymore. I mean, we, we, we know of that. But, you know, mo mo you know, most doctors and most patients, I mean, for most drugs, like you have a side effect and goes away when you stop a drug. That's sort of the general concept. I think the, the, the paradigm shift here is similar to tardive dyskinesia. Are there other drugs you know, that can cause these side effects that even when you're not on the drug. And so do we need to create a different term like PSSD versus post TCA syndrome or post, you know, um, you know, Accutane mm -hmm. is actually another mm -hmm. drug, you know, in the derm community that's been researched. Um, in fact, there's a whole, there's a website, um, um, you know, that's basically PFS, PSSD and post Accutane syndrome. Uh, so these are three completely, you know, ostensibly very different drugs um, and for different indications, all that. Um, so this is more of a classification uh, sort of thing where, yeah, I mean, the people who are saying they take TCAs or, or other drugs and they have similar components, maybe that's another thing. And then it's just a matter of how much commonality is there and do we need to have different terms? Um, yeah, I think the point to make is that it really is an evolving science. And, you know, I guess when you when the when the research project started, it sounded like you were looking for a very pure sample so you could do very good, consistent research on something. You weren't trying to take a stand and say it only happens with this class of drugs. That that was just where you were starting. And then as right. science evolves, uh, new terms may be available. You, you know, yeah, the terms may be updated. And it's just kind of where we are at the moment. 100%. I mean, our, so it wasn't as though I went through every single chart he's ever done and was like, okay, which one of these have a post-drug syndrome? And oh, you know, X percentage or SRISNRI. That I mean, that would be the study to get at your question, basically. Um, and not just Dr. Goldstein, but everybody's patients. You know, I mean, everybody's taken a TCA or taken whatever, and then let's see how many of them have this. Um, and then overall, but our our research or my research specifically started off by saying the patient needed to have an SRISNRI in their patient history. How many charts have you reviewed <laughs> of uh, patients um, who have? Uh, come forward uh, believing they've had PSSD? Uh, so quite a lot. Um, you know, we keep, for this research, um, you know, our goals, and I've been working on this paper for now almost, you know, four years now. Um, and, you know, we keep sort of expanding this project, uh, because, you know, because there's so many aspects to this and we've debated about splitting this up into little papers or bigger papers. And then we kind of keep changing our sort of inclusion-exclusion criteria. Um you know, right now for the, the paper that we're probably going to try to, you know, publish at the end of this year, early next year, I think in the 40s, um, because we wanted a very, very pure sample um, where it's pretty much unquestionable in terms of their history um, and, and that, that, PS, that they have PSSD, their sexual dysfunction is due to PSSD. There is no other confounding factor whatsoever that anybody could point to and be like, oh, well, it's actually because of A, B, and C. Um, Remember, in real life, uh, just like with any any medical condition, uh, you know, some people sure. have multiple things going on, uh, right? I mean, someone could have, you know, just someone could have sexual dysfunction because of uh, trauma, because you know, of, of PSSD, because of whatever. I mean, there there's multiple things, 
And so that doesn't diminish PSSD as a condition. But in right now, remember, you know, our one of our goals, we have multiple goals, but one of our goals is to just again reinforce the fact that I mean these patients, these are medical charts. These are not just a questionnaire that you enter online. These people show up in a clinic, you know, headed by a, a doctor mm -hmm. who's, you know, well experienced, who has very detailed charts, with very detailed history, physical exam. Uh, labs, you name it, radiology, everything, the whole nine yards, and, and multiple visits in the vast majority of cases. Um, so this is the most intensive of all the literature that's been done since 2006 when this first showed up. I, I would say this is in terms of um, in terms of the level of detail we know about these people, about these patients and their histories. Um, this is by far and away the most. And so I really, for our purposes, wanted to make it a pure, pure sample of like, this person has PSSD, there's no other reason for their sexual dysfunction, and they meet every possible criteria well, you can think of uh, to meet this. Well, firstly, God bless you guys, and I'm so happy you're doing this work. And and I'm going to say you have no idea how much it means to some people, but you may, because you know if you've been doing this, you know that there's a lot of desperation when something like this happens, but it's 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 just amazing work what what your group is working on um i think you you touched on something that um i'd like to explore further which is really the diagnostic criteria you know so how you know in terms of the clinical features of someone with pssd what are they and then how do you separate them from sexual dysfunction due to things such as vascular disease, performance anxiety, or I'm going to say psychosomatic causes. I don't know if you've talked about that before, but I know that's a common way that uh, naysayers yes. like to dismiss it by saying, oh, these are people who have a hard time, you know, you know, with sexual performance, and then they have just decided that they're going to latch on to the idea of having PSSD as a defense, and it's psychosomatic, and I mean... I don't like that argument, but I, I'm, I wonder if, if it's something that, that you think about when, when you're going through the charts and you're saying, how am I, I going to tease out that this is, this is you know, materially different from these other alternative explanations for sexual dysfunction? Um, so great question, and uh, you're getting at basically my life for the past four years is teasing that apart. Um, the great news is that, as I mentioned, these charts are very detailed, and Dr. Goldstein is a very detailed and thorough doctor, um, and uh, so I'm able to do this. Um, that I don't think that you know, thus far, necessarily um, anyone has been able to do to this degree. So, absolutely, 100%. You know, could this be a psychogenic thing? I mean, that's sort of the main critics' argument. We'll get to trauma and those other things as well, but just in terms of the first thing that people will say is, well, these people have major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder or some other psychiatric disorder. Obviously, they were given an SRI, SNRI for a reason, um, and we know that, you know, just to take major depressive disorder, which is obviously the most common uh, indication, uh, that that's known to cause, um, can, can cause sexual dysfunction uh, in a number of people. Uh, not everyone with major depression gets sexual dysfunction, but a fair number do. Um, and so, you know, how can we tell the sexual dysfunction was not from, say, a major depressive episode versus this drug? So there are a couple of things. So number one is history. And that's, I mean, the, we, half of med school is learning how to take a history properly. Um, so, so to give you an example, like, you know, in the chart, what I would be looking for is, you know, I started developing depressive symptoms um, and, uh, you know, A, B, C, and D, you know, you can go through the DSM criteria, blah, 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 I have this, this, and this. And then I went to a psychiatrist or my family medicine doctor, and I was diagnosed with major depression. Um, and, um, and, but I did not have sexual dysfunction during this time. You know, I couldn't focus, I couldn't concentrate, I was tired, mm -hmm. um, you know, all those sort of, you can go through the nine, sure. you know, the five out of the nine, you know, the things that we learn in, in med school. Um, so, yeah, so I, I met the definition for major depressive disorder, mm -hmm. um, but I did not have sexual dysfunction um, at all. I was a healthy 25-year-old young man, um, you know, who had great erections, great libido, uh, or had orgasm, I had general sensation, all those sorts of things. Uh, and the, and the, I'm literally like repeating mm -hmm. what I read 
in the charts. This is how detailed this is. Then I took a drug. I was prescribed Lexapro or whatever your favorite SSRI is. Um, and I noticed that I took the Lexapro and my erections became weaker in terms of rigidity, in terms of um, how quickly they, the erection started, uh, the duration that the uh, erection lasted, um, you know, and just, um, you know, again, firmness. Um, my libido tanked. Uh, I felt no sexual attraction. Um, and then, you know, it, even if I could manage a very weak erection, you know, mm -hmm. I would ejaculate without feeling any pleasure. So, based, you know, pleasureless ejaculation or, you know, anorgasmia, there are a number of terms, um, uh, or pleasure, pleasureless orgasm. And I couldn't, and I didn't feel pleasurable mm -hmm. sensation. It was like having a hundred condoms on. Uh, I'm, re I'm repeating exact phrases from the charts here. You know, I felt like I had 50 condoms on my penis because I couldn't feel. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, I was on the Lexapro for whatever, eight months, two years. Um, and then, you know, I was told that, well, you know, it could, it'll, it'll be fine. It'll be fine once you get off the drug. Um, and, you know, my, you know, my depressive symptoms, you know, went away or maybe, you know, and then I got off the drug after two years, hooray, I'm off of Lexapro. And then I kept waiting and waiting and I kept waiting. Um, you know, I was told to come back in a few days, you know, probably immediately, maybe a few days max. Um, and I kept waiting. It's now six months, eight months, and now it's a year. And my sexual dysfunction, the lack of ED, the anorgasmia, the lack of sensation, um, lack of libido, it's still there. And I'm a you know 27 year old now. When I'm at you know the peak of my you know you should be at the peak of your sexual uh, function at this point, which I you know was before I took the the Lexapro, mm -hmm. um, uh, it's no longer there. So um, you know so that's the classic classic story for PSSD, I would say, um, and so it's all about mm -hmm. taking history, and so that's that would be my number one point to your question. The set, you know, there are further things. Number two. You know, major depression does not cause sensation issues. Like, that's not a thing. Major depression, if it causes sexual dysfunction, you know, it can cause libido problems. It can cause, you know, erectile dysfunction. Um, it does not cause lack of sensation or, gen you know, general anesthesia. There are a number of terms for this. That's not a thing that depression is known for. Um, if, any if anything, we give uh, for, for, a, for premature ejaculation, it's kind of the opposite problem where you have too much sensation and therefore you ejaculate too quickly. And so we give you know, a type of uh, SSRI, if you will, for that, to for, for premature ejaculation. Um, so you can, it's not completely crazy to think, oh, well, it might affect sensation in some way, except it's the opposite problem where mm -hmm. the drug takes away the sensation. Um, so, you know, as far as I, and I've done my research, I don't know of any literature which shows major depression causing general anesthesia. Well, let me say this, like there's, um, because I'm going to play devil's advocate because I know that some, somewhere someone's going to be saying this, they'll say, yeah, yeah, but you know, functional neurological disorder, conversion disorder, hysteria, whatever name you want to give it for these psychological symptoms. I, I've seen it cause paralysis in some people. I've seen it cause blindness in some people. Why wouldn't it cause? Why couldn't it cause genital anesthesia? Mm -hmm. um, what do you say to, to arguments like that? Because I've heard them. Yeah. Well, I was going to give my third point, so I, I don't know if you're going to be have an answer for the third one. So the third point would be what we're doing is um, we've done ultrasounds on these folks of their genitalia, of their penis, and and, rem and remember, I'm a radiologist, so I like physics and I like objective information. Um, so, uh, so objectively, uh, it's really hard to argue against ultrasound because, I mean, we use it for everything and it's sound waves. Um, so basically, yeah, we, we have done ultrasound on these folks and what we've discovered, and this will be one of the main aspects of our paper, um, is that their tissue is not normal at all. Um, so a normal, healthy young man, their penile tissue should be homogenous. Their smooth muscle, everything should be homogenous symmetric, you know, um, these people have fibrosis, they have inhomogeneity, it's heterogeneous. Um, there's areas of fibrosis, a scarring is another term uh, to think about for the non-med med people out there that it's just, they're scarring. And if they're scarring, um, that obviously will not be uh, conducive to an erection. Um, so, and here's the other point, it's not just scarring, it's, it's scarring in, in the entire shaft, essentially, of the penis. So what does, that, what does this mean? So in people who have vascular problems like diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, you know, heart disease, older 
80-year-old man with diabetes, they have, you know, if they have erectile dysfunction from those vascular risk factors, they will have, um, you know, penile tissue that's scarred and throughout the penile shaft. But they're 80 years old with these five other risk factors that I just mentioned. The people that I'm looking at are, you know, 70% of them are less than 30, uh, and they have, and they have virtually no vascular risk factors. They don't have diabetes. They don't have mm -hmm. hypertension. They're a 25 year old guy with no, nothing, you know, not overweight, not smoking, nothing. Um, and so their penis looks like an 80 year old diabetic who's smoke, wow. who's smoking and who's obese and has hypertension, hyperlipidemia. So that's, and then the other cohort, and you had mentioned trauma earlier. So trauma, you know, that can obviously happen at any age. Uh, you know, you drive your bike, and uh, you get into an accident. Before we go into trauma, because this is such an interesting thing, um, when you see kind of fibrosis in the penile tissue, um, what does that say about the cause of PSSD to you? Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to jump the gun here, but yes. Um, so what this suggests, and again, this goes back to my original point about, you know, how, how does PSSD work on a cellular biochemical way? Uh, it's complicated, clearly, um, because obviously it's a serotonergic drug. There's serotonin in our brain, and you know there's obviously the theories are surrounding the neurons in our brain. But what this suggests is that there, that there's peripheral effects, right? And this is affecting the penile tissue. You know, we're not talking about we're not talking about the hippocampus here. We're not talking about the brain here. We're talking about penile tissue, um, and um, you know, again, what. Why does that happen? And again, they're they're possible not not just for PSSD, but in general. Why does penile tissue scar? Why does it um, do that? Mm -hmm. And again, that's also sort of a hot topic of research. And there's no definitive answer. Some people have said something called reactive oxygen species, which is kind of a thing that you learn about in organic chemistry that can cause bad things. Um, you know, I I don't know to to be honest. But what I can't really fight sure. against is that I see a penile shaft that looks like you know. Uh, okay, and and from and from the people who had clinical, like who who reported the clinical symptoms consistent with uh, PSSD, like the genital anesthesia and the loss of libido and and such. I I don't know if you know, you may not have the exact statistics mm -hmm. here, but maybe you could ballpark them. Do you know roughly what percentage of those people with those who reported the symptoms had corresponding? Um, changes on ultrasound i guess just trying to get at how um how how um yeah. i guess sensitive and specific the um the, the ultrasound might be one day as a diagnostic tool right so i would say um the vast majority of so we would do ultrasounds on people who had erectile dysfunction that was the ticket to getting an ultrasound um, the vast majority of our PSSD cohort had erectile dysfunction. Um, you know, there were a handful, I, I, you know, don't quote me on the numbers, they're liable to change as I'm still working on mm -hmm. this, but I would say less than 10%, probably less than 10%, uh, you know, and they would have the other problems, the libido and the orgasm issues and the sensation issues. Um, but you know, 90 mm -hmm. plus percent would have erectile dysfunction plus those other symptoms that we talked about. And so of those people, uh, with, um, you know, the 90% of who had ED and thus got an ultrasound, the vast majority um, had some um, level of erectile inhomogeneity. I mean, the vast majority. And I, and I, I'd love to give you a number, but honestly, we're still calculating the numbers. <laughs> so uh, I can't oh, tell you the I'll number. I'm hanging out for the paper. I hope it's going to drop a bombshell in the world because it really should, you know, um, something something this big. Well, the other bombshell, that I, well, I mean, this is sort of related to the same topic, but... Um, the trauma mm -hmm. cord is very interesting because obviously young people also get trauma. And that's, remember, the, when people think of ED, they think of, again, the 80-year-old diabetic who's obese and who's smoking cigarettes and has, you know, hypertension. These are 25-year-old healthy young men who have zero vascular risk factors, none. Um, and their penis looks like, an, like the 80-year-olds. Um, but then, you know, we have another group of people who are in their 20s or 30s um, who, you know, went, underwent trauma you know, because they're on mm -hmm. a, a biking accident or, or whatever, or they're playing sports or something, um, and they have erectile dysfunction. So they're, you know, roughly the same age group, uh, you know, young people, in other words, trauma people. Um, so they have, enough, they have, erect, they have um, fibrosis too, but their fibrosis is limited yeah. to the, a very specific part of the penis, the part yeah. that went, underwent trauma, right? 
So that makes sense, right? It makes sense that where they had the trauma, that's where the tissue is uh, inhomogeneous. In um, and so we have this PSST group and these two control groups. We have a trauma cohort of young people, like the PSSD people, they're young, and they also don't have vascular risk factors or anything, and they have an they have an homogeneity in a very specific part of the penis where they had trauma. Um, and then you have the vascular group, which are 80-year-old with you know a bunch of risk factors, and their penises look like the PSSD penises. So so we have, I mean, no one's done this research before, uh, and and it as you said, it's I mean, it's an objective. And that's what radiology is. That's why we use it in medicine. It's an objective way to assess things. And to your earlier question, the original question about is this psychosomatic or whatnot, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know about any psychosomatic yeah. thing that would cause tissue degeneration. Mic drop. There you go. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, this is really, really exciting. Um, I, I want to touch on another element uh, that frequently gets rolled into PSSD, and I want to hear what you think about it. When I've I've probably spoken to, I'd say maybe ten people with PSSD in the last year, um, and um, not only do they describe the kind of the sexual dysfunction that we've been talking about, they frequently talk about um, a kind of an emotional blunting that's almost dissociative in effect. It's like I. Um, I feel separated from the world around me. I'm having some difficulty thinking clearly. I have some brain fog um, and very, very unnerving, very unpleasant, complete, feeling completely disconnected from, from things. And, and many people have, sa have said that that's actually the thing that makes them the most unhappy about the condition. I was wondering if you could um, speak to that. I don't, I don't know if you've... Right. Do, do you think that has relevance in the diagnosis diagnosis of PSSD as being maybe part of a, a syndrome or, or just share any thoughts about, uh, about that? No, it's a very important question, um, both from an academic perspective in terms of defining this and also clinically in terms of um, with patients. So here are my thoughts. I would say PSSD originally and classically and in the, in the, the majority of the literature thus far um, has focused on the sexual aspects. Um, I mean, that, you know, from 2006 um, to Dr. David Healy's papers, um, you know, they have focused on the sexual dysfunction. So the question is, are there non-sexual aspects to this? So here are my thoughts on this. I think, mm -hmm. so, so if we go back to that patient example, um, you know, they had something for which they were given an SRI, SNRI for, right? MDD, uh, major depression, generalized anxiety disorder, some other psychiatric disorder, um, you could argue they may have been even misdiagnosed with depression. Maybe they were going through grief or heartbreak or something. Um, and, but my point is that they were going through some mental distress for which they went to a doctor and rightly or wrongly or whatever, they were given a drug. Okay. So we did a really good job, as I mentioned, trying to distinguish, you know, those things, um, whatever their mental distress was, whatever psychiatric disorder mm -hmm. they had or didn't have from their sexual dysfunction, because we wanted to make sure that, to argue against these sexual symptoms are not psychogenic in etiology, that they're iatrogenic, right? So we did that job. So now, okay, so let's, 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 let's accept that for a second. Now the question is, okay, this patient, they have sexual dysfunction. So there's a couple of things that can happen. So sexual dysfunction from any etiology has, is known to cause um, distress, mm -hmm. um, and it's also been shown to lead to psych major depression. <laughs> Uh, you know, any stressor, if sufficient, sufficiently severe enough and, um, you know, uh, you know, given obviously right genetics, blah, 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 um, you know, can, can precipitate a major depressive episode. Any stressor can, and sexual dysfunction is a stressor for many people. Um, and so, uh, and I can tell you that, uh, you know, we have various means of measuring this, but, um, pretty much everybody in the cohort of PSSD folks had very high levels of distress due to their dysfunction, sexual dysfunction. They were upset and angry and all those things. And, um, and I would not be, and a, a further cohort of that, um, whether they had originally major depression or they didn't have it, they may have developed depression secondary to the distress of, to, of having sexual dysfunction. Right. So that's a possible group too. Um, 
So that's obviously sort of reactive or secondary, if you will, to having sexual dysfunction if they have, you know, developed a major depressive episode due to that. The people you're talking about are claiming something different, though. What they're saying is that they're sort of, and remember, major depressive disorder, many of the symptoms include not being able to focus, not thinking clearly, being detected. I mean, the, the things you mentioned, frankly, are things that we learn about in major depression. The severe states of anxiety can often precipitate dissociation and disconnection from the world as well. Right. 100%. So, uh, yeah, anxiety as well. So, but what they're, what they're trying to say is, well, this, uh, you know, my brain fog mm -hmm. or my lack of cognitive focusing is from the drug itself that's also iatrogenic. So then the job would be of a researcher and a clinician, but a researcher at this stage certainly, is to be like, okay, your brain fog or your cognitive disassociation or your isolation, all those things you're mentioning, you know, is this from the drug or is this, you know, secondary to your distress from your sexual dysfunction. Now, to, as a thought experiment, let's say t we came up with a cure to the sexual dysfunction, right? Um, and we gave them something that allowed their sexual dysfunction to go away. If their major depressive episode mm -hmm. was secondary to the distress from having sexual dysfunction, well, then that presumably the stressor is gone, so that should go away. If, however, their brain fog, et cetera, et cetera, is entirely is from the drug itself, and you know their sexual dysfunction is cured, um, and they still have brain fog and they still feel detached, well, then that would suggest that it's actually from the drug. That's not a secondary, mm -hmm. you know, reactive depressive episode mm -hmm. they're experiencing, but it's actually from the drug itself, uh, if that makes sense. Um, you know, so in terms of, so I, is it possible? Absolutely. I would just say that in terms of our research, um, you know, in our charts, yes, we would have people, so, you know, to continue that example, so I'm 27 years old, I have sexual dysfunction, now I'm distressed sure. and, you know, I can't focus. Okay, so I'm like reading a chart from you, for you, basically. I'm distressed and I can't focus and I'm 27 years old. So when that sentence, do I interpret that I can't focus as, oh, this is a secondary depressive episode or, you know, a reactive secondary episode to your sexual dysfunction or is this actually also from the drug? I can't tell that. And our charts, remember, I mean, Dr. Goldstein is a sexual medicine doctor, right? Uh, so he... In terms of teasing that apart, that was not really the prime focus necessarily of his clinical visits per se, um, nor in terms of, and I think it's a very good thing to look into, but we need to, a way to develop and distinguish those two things. Um, it's interesting, yeah, because um, you know, no one's taking an ultrasound to the brain to find, um, you know, to find signs there. I mean, maybe, maybe one day we'll find something on fMRI or right. some of these other these other tools um, that, that they could look at. But um, the, you know, it, re it reminds me in many ways of the suicide, uh, uh, the suicide uh, issue with antidepressants, wherefore, you know, after, and this is, this is another David Healy thing, you know, when, when he was talking about it in 1991, they were saying that, um, you know, the patients yeah. who were claiming that the drugs made them more suicidal were, uh, it was coming from their underlying depression and not from the drug. And it took about 15 years for people to finally realize that that was not the case. And, you know, all, all central nervous system drugs, you know, have paradoxical effects in some people. And if they happen in people who are depressed, it could make them suicidal. You know, just like if you were smoking weed with a bunch of your friends, you know, five, you know, four out right. of five might be pleasantly relaxed and laughing and one person might be paranoid and, and not having a good time. You know, drugs do not have uniform effects in, in, for, in, in all people for reasons we don't understand. And ultimately with the suicide question, it was all about um, teasing out um, the quality of the behavior um, compared to their baseline, right? Because if someone's had maybe 20 years of depression and this is what it looks like and this is how they feel. And then shortly after coming on the drug, all of a sudden they're pacing all over the place. They're highly agitated. Sure. You know, some people who are depressed pace a lot and are highly agitated, but what are the chances of, of the whole nature of someone's depression changing? And when you look at enough of those cases and you see a similar pattern of, of changes, um, it starts to, it starts to look, um, like there really may be something to it. Um, PSSD is going to be harder because the, the problem with the cognitive issues with PSSD is there's no, um, you can't 
remove it's not like you can remove the drug and it goes away with the suicide issue you could just remove the antidepressant and then within a few weeks they get better with this one you can't do that and so it really has to be teased out symptomatically you right. know in, in a pattern um and one thing that you might be interested in and maybe talk to dr goldstein about maybe he'll even start asking people about this is to ask people how they respond to drugs after they um develop cognitive problems with PSSD because a lot of people that I've spoken to have said that they no longer feel any euphoria from things like alcohol. You know, I've had some people take trips on ibogaine or hardcore psychedelics and they just say that it's just not affecting them in normal ways. And so I, I always think, I mean, that's really unusual to me when, when people start saying that stuff because I've never heard of depression making someone kind of impervious to the euphoric right. effects of the drug. Um, and so there's a few things in there that, 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 that stick out to me as being like, wow, that's really odd, right. you know, and, and I've heard this too many times for me to think, ah, oh, it's probably nothing. Yeah. And so, yeah, two major points from what you just said. One is being able to distinguish what a sort of depression would look like versus an iatrogenic cognitive dysfunction would look like, uh, and any means to do that would be helpful. Um, and I also think the first point you made is absolutely crucial um, is the brain is complicated, the body is complicated and drugs are very complicated uh, and their interaction is then multifold complicated. Um, and, you know, we need to have some humility uh, as researchers and clinicians uh, in academia that, you know, it's complicated. And so there may be multiple subtypes. Maybe there are some people who have say, you know, the pure sexual version of PSSD where they have sexual dysfunction, uh, but they don't have the cognitive things. That's I've seen patients have that too. And maybe there's another cohort where, yeah, they have sexual dysfunction. But they also have cognitive effects from the drug itself. And it's not due to depression. It's not, you know, depression. It's not the original depression. It's not their depression secondary to their, you know, if they even had depression secondary to their sexual dysfunction, it's truly from the drug. And that's a cohort of people. And for them, you know, they could be, you know, there's no subtypes of PSSD yet. <laughs> Right, but the reason why we have subtypes of diseases is because pe people develop and research more, and then they find there are different cohorts of people who react differently, and so there may be two different cohorts of PSSD, and we'll label them later. The point is what you said is that with any drug, mm -hmm. iatrogenic or I'm sorry, you know, pharmacologic anything can cause all sorts of effects, and we need to be humble in terms of labeling things and re revise it as needed. It's interesting, you know, the. Um... You know, it was just dawning on me that there could be a cohort of people out there who who don't have sexual dysfunction, but they just have blunting, because um, you, when we think about it, you know, what are the most common effects of these drugs? You know, they're they're, they're emotionally constricting, 100%. they reduce anxiety, and for a lot of people, that feels like blunting or dissociation, this kind of separateness, and um, just like the sexual dysfunction may endure afterwards, maybe these states of disassociation. Could, could endure by other means, by, by there just being some way that the brain is not able to essentially spring back after the drug has been removed, you know, for reasons that we don't understand. Um, and, and, and so they could occur together, they could occur separately, you know, and yeah. And, and, and to that point, just um, so, you know, if we think about um, if, you know, what, one of the problems with these PSSD folks is that they go to their doctor and they say they have this and they say, oh, your erectile dysfunction is due to, you know, psychogenic reasons. You have depression, you know, that's why you got the drug, right? So it's your depression. So it's, it's you know, just, and obviously I did that as a researcher and I was able to try to, you know, tease that out. Dr. Goldstein did as a clinician, but I'm talking about your average person goes to your, their internal medicine doctor and they're like, well, you know, we have a, you're psychogenic, you know, it's, it's performance anxiety, you know, it's, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So similarly, for those people who are arguing about their, their cognitive dysfunction, they'll get the same response from many clinicians, which if they say they're, you know, they feel, you know, they have brain fog, oh, it's just your depression. You know, it's just your depression in a different form, you know, and then they'll give, they'll probably give them another psychotropic drug, maybe a different SSRI. So the point is, is that with all of this, um, it's trying to tease apart through history um, through other things like what you were saying in terms of response to other drugs, that's another avenue. Uh, if possible, maybe certain specific symptoms may be different 
And then again, what are the odds that someone's say, you know, manifestation would be different than their, you know, depression or whatnot or normal depression. And then the third thing is, if possible, you know, objective things, which as you said, you know, we can do that for the penis, although, you know, that, that hasn't, this hasn't really done for the penis either. And this is pretty, uh, you know, this is relatively new even within neurology. Um, but then, you know, as you said, fMRI or something, if there's some way to objectively tease these things apart and say, whether it's your sexual dysfunction or your brain fog or both or whatever, is this from a drug? Is this from a psycho psychiatric disorder? Um, those are all different avenues to try to distinguish this. And until we do so, there will, you know, again, as I said in the beginning, there are doctors who go with the old school thought and doctors who want to, you know, be the revolutionaries. I think it's important to be in a happy medium. Um, you know, it's important to be, you know, think of common things, but then think of possible exceptions. And, and ultimately we need is data. And that's the great thing about our paper is we have data. Mm-hmm. From being in close contact with Gold, Dr. Goldstein and looking at charts over time, what can you tell me about um, the prognosis of this condition? Yeah, so, you know, Dr. Goldstein, um, he, uh, I would say that's, that's, that's pretty much another paper <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, and that, and that, that will, you know, we'll think about trying to do that too. The only thing is, is that, um, that's what I actually started doing, you know, four years ago. And then I kind of switched more to the diagnostic side. I would say the prognosis is mixed. Um, I would say many, um, many don't show improvement, um, but some do show improvement. And, but to tease apart why and how is an extraordinarily complicated question in part because Dr. Goldstein uses a lot of different um, tools at his disposal in terms of attacking this. And then in terms of trying to tease apart you know, what treatment is working or not working, um, that, would, that, would, that would be a whole research project in and of itself. Um, I would say just generally though, yes, there are definitely patients of his who have improved and there are a few patients who have, have recovered. Um, but there are also a few patients who, who have not recovered. So I, I know that sounds very vague, um, but I would be lying if I tried to give you numbers. Uh, but I, I would say there are people in all those groups. I would say that at least Dr. Goldstein, um, you know, he regularly treats, he sees PSSC patients regularly in a clinical level, and he treats them, and he attempts treatment and various treatments, um, and he's one of the very few who do uh, in the world. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, I think that sitting at home and not doing anything, um, you know, at least, you know, there are obviously many PSC forms out there, and you will see people who are, you know, have had this for 10 years, 15 years, I mean, just years and years, mm-hmm. and nothing's happening, and they try various things, um, you know, horny goat weed, and all these, all these sorts of, uh, you know, herbs and whatnot, and, um, and, you know, maybe it'll have some positive effect that's partial and transient, um, and, and maybe there is even something to it, again, like, I mean, I'm not dismissing horny goat weed, I'm not dismissing anything. Uh, because and we don't even know what the, the pathophysiology of this is per se, let alone what what would any you know positive iatrogenic effect would be. I mean that we're not at that level yet. Um, but I would say that um, many of the people you know on these forms don't recover, and the prognosis is you know because there is no there's no set treatment for this. There's no consensus. Well, I guess what I want what I want you know on the forums the. The forums for a lot of these um, drug-induced injury places, they tend to um, accumulate over time. The, the worst cases because the people who recover tend to leave. But I was hoping, you know, in a kind of a cohort that might naturally just present, you know, we would see something different because you, you go on the forums, it's all doom and gloom. But it sounds like, um, yeah, like you said, it's, I mean, you didn't say it's mostly bad. You said it's mixed, you know, which which is, you know, maybe some people recover. Yeah, I don't know if you could speak to that. Um, you, you know, I, I work nice. a lot with people who have yeah. kind of neurological problems when they come off benzodiazepines. And for them, I would say about a third recover within two years. You know, the rest of them about, the, you know, the, the next 60% by year five. And then there's a small group where it goes on. I don't know if you're anywhere close to kind of taking a stab in the dark for, for what what seems to be happening. Ha- happening in a 
in this sort of all comers cohort of people just turning up saying they have it as opposed to just this online forums where everyone's super sick. Yeah. So I would say that, um, so it's a great point about the PhD forum that people who recover often don't come back, um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, or maybe they did try something at work, but they don't actually explain what works. Um, so that is true. I would say that, yes, you know, and, but part of that may also be true for our folks. I mean, there are, there are patients who w would show up every year and then they disappeared and they didn't show up again. So why aren't they showing up to our clinic anymore? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, so, you know, and then it's sort of, you know, the ethics of research in terms of, well, should I call them and be like, hey, why aren't you showing up to San Diego Sexual Medicine anymore and say, oh, you recovered completely from sexually and you don't uh, you know, see a doctor anymore? Congratulations. I mean, that would, that would, be, that would be something to do, and, but potentially, although there's, you know, I would have to think of the ethical ramifications of that um, in terms of research. Um, so there, in other words, people drop out. Uh, the people who stay, um, as I said, you know, I'd love to give you numbers, but I honestly don't know the numbers, and I don't want to make them up. I'll look. Um, I'll look. I'll look I for the paper say, eagerly because I'm. Uh, ho hopefully, it comes. Well, so so yeah. I, I should just this paper that we're hopefully the end of this year, early next year, is going to be mo more focused on you know the ultrasound, the diagnostics. It's not going to be focused on treatment per se. That is a good, very good idea for a follow-up paper. Yeah. Um, but what I would say is that there there are groups of both. There are certain there are, there are some people who have completely recovered. Uh, there are some people who have, you know, tried all the things that Dr. Olsen is trying and they've maybe shown some improvement, but it's transient, uh, or whatnot, or it's partial. And then they're, you know, some are happy with that and they're like, well, I have partial improvement and, you know, I can have, you know, it's a mixed bag. Um, that's the best I can say. I mean, partial improvement's always a good sign. It's showing that the body is pushing back against the changes and recovering and trajectory is everything I think with recovery from these injuries. Um, a few more things I wanted to ask. One is just a simple one. How long does someone have to have sexual dysfunction after being off one of these medications for it to start to be considered abnormal, like PSSD territory? Because I will say just within one degree of separation from me, I've known people who have had sexual dysfunction for six months after coming off their antidepressants and they didn't say anything and they were just like, yeah, oh, I just thought it was normal. And then like, thankfully it recovered for this person that I know. What, what, what's your, what's your take on that? So I think the definition that we used is a minimum of six months. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, there's a paper from Israel in 2015, you know, and they said they argued for, I believe one month and their argument was even if you take the you know Prozac, which is the longest half life, you know, after a month, you know, you should, you should have any, your sexual dysfunction should, should come back. And, you know, just from, you know, and just speaking to my psychiatry colleagues, you know, many of them say, yeah, I should come back within a few days, maybe a few weeks or something, you know, sure. um, six months in general, not just for PSSD, but for erectile dysfunction period from any cause for ED, which has also been researched for, for decades. Uh, and Dr. Goldstein is literally okay. one of the leading world's experts in ED period, um, you know, six months, it's sort of the minimum that you have to have. And uh, I would say, frankly, yeah. in our cohort, okay. I mean, maybe there's like one or two people who are six months, but the vast majority are way more than that, much more than that. And even the six-month people, I think that are pretty recent patients who, you know, there's more awareness about PSSD, so they're catching it. Frankly, most of our patients are, you know, um, they, they went to a number of doctors, they told, you know, they were told it's all in their head, it's all psychogenic, it's from their major depressive disorder, and this isn't a real thing. Or they just get told, okay, here's, you know, maybe a few of them will be given Viagra or something and be like, oh, well, you know, which obviously won't work, they don't have libido, have anything, and obviously as we show, there's, you know, mm -hmm. uh, lack of tissue and whatnot. So, um, so, and then they go around with all these doctors and they're told that this is all in their head, and then somehow they found out about sure. Dr. Goldstein, you know, through a forum or through whatever. And then they land to Dr. Goldstein, you know, two, three, four years, five years after this. And so even, even the ages, and we'll say this in the paper, the ages yeah. that I, you know, I mentioned 70% less than 30, that age is the age when they first show up to the appointment, uh, in-person patient appointment. That is not the age, that's not the age that was six months prior to, or six months after discontinuation of the drug. That would be even younger you know, the, the mean would be. Um, so, so yeah, I would say six months minimum, but honestly in the real world, it's, it's usually more than that. 
another question, and uh, I know we talked a lot about penile tissue. What do the ultrasounds show in women? You're giving me all the good research ideas. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so Dr. Goldstein, uh, you know, he's kind of the world guru on erectile dysfunction and male dys dysfunction. He's also kind of the guru in women's dysfunction. He, he wrote the textbook literally. You know, he wrote the book literally on, on women's sexual dysfunction. Um, so it, I would say it's interesting because, you know, women are prescribed more estrogen than ours than men are. Uh, I forgot the ratio. It's almost two to one, I think. It's, it's, it, it, they're prescribed more, so you would think. I would say in, you know, I, I have data going back to, um, you know, when he, uh, I don't know, I think we started in, in at least 12, 13 years ago. Um, I would say the women patients for PSSD are relatively recent. Um, you know, he's, at, he's seen PSSD for, you know, 12, 13 years now for men. For women are relatively more recent. Um, and so when I started the project, we had way more men than women. And then we were thinking about including both, but then we decided just to focus on the men uh, to keep, keep it a pure, you know, again, it's about limiting scope of the paper, that's all. Um, but that is one of the many research ideas for the next paper is to focus in one of them is women. Um, and recently in the past, I would say, you know, two, three, four years, especially when I've been busy with, you know, this cohort of men, Dr. Goldstein has seen more and more women patients who are coming in uh, with PSSD. Um, and so the question then is, and how do you assess those women? Uh, and do we have an objective measurement? Um, you know, yeah. can you ultrasound the clitoris? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Um, and honestly, that's a little, that's, that's above my pay grade. Uh, that's not something that I'm, I've, I've done research sure. in. That's something I'm really we'll make... to talk about. Dr. Goldstein, you know, would be the perfect person to answer, ask that question. I mean, I just, I'm throwing that out there, you know, I just, I don't think it's as easy or as straightforward um, uh, in terms of just taking an erect penis and putting an ultrasound probe and seeing the muscle. I mean, it's, it's, a, rel it's a relatively straightforward concept if you think about it. Uh, with women though, how can you really demonstrate in a radiologic or objective fashion? I'm not sure. It's above my pay grade as well, I have to say. So, yeah. Um, okay, great. Um... Those are about all the questions that I had. I, what else haven't we touched on? What do you think is interesting? Um, anything else interesting that you'd like to, to speak with uh, the audience about? Um, I would say that, you know, it, it's all about data collection. It's all about analyzing people and their stories and trying to find, you know, more and more information. Um, that's the way research is done. That's the way science works. That's how medicine works. Um, and so you know, the more data we have, the better, and the better we can refine these things. And um, as I said, our definitions now, I mean, our definition, you know, may be totally different in five years and 10 years and 15 years. Um, and, and we may have subgroups of subgroups of these things. Um, and I would say to anybody listening, you know, I would say consider PSSD as a serious possibility. Um, go to, you know, Dr. You know, Dr. Olsen, obviously a doctor, but he's trained multiple fellows um, you know, from Washington, D.C. To, to the West Coast, um, or another sexual medicine expert, you know, um, I would, you know, who, who knows what they're, who knows what they're doing or can refer you to the appropriate person. Um, because if we don't have data, we can't analyze it further. And then we're kind of just, you know, just in the dark. Um, and uh, I would say it's something that, wow. you know, antidepressants, I think, are now like the leading drug class in the country. I think they've surpassed statins, even, if I'm not mistaken. I think they're second, now they're first. I mean, I think that like 15% of Americans, American adults, are on antidepressants, or 10%, or some insanely high I think number. COVID really push, pushed us and pushed it into the number one position. Yeah, yeah right. So I would yeah. say that, you know, it's important to take seriously as a patient, um, you know, if there's any providers or clinicians out there, um, you know, I would say consider it. There's good research on it. There will be more research, uh, as, as you will see very in a few months, um, that shows that this is a real condition. Um, it should be seriously thought of. It should be obviously, you know, part of the informed consent process. Um, um, you know, and you can qualify it by saying this has to be researched more or whatever, of course. Uh, but 
it is what it is. And I would say that on every, whether it's a researcher or a clinician or, or a patient or maybe a family member of a patient, take PSSD seriously and try to invest in it, invest in it accordingly. And if you're a patient, you know, go to the appropriate doctor so you can try to get better and or just give us more data so we can learn about it further. And that may help you later on, even if it doesn't help you immediately. Um, and so I would say there are very smart people working on this and thinking about it, but we need help, as much help as we can uh, to raise awareness about this. Um, you know, there's a paper just published, I think this year, the same Israeli group, and you know, they gave, they were trying to calculate the incidence and prevalence of this. Um, you know, even if it's a small percentage, you know, 1% of 15% of American adults, or even 0.01% rather, you know, that's, that's still hundreds of people, thousands of people. Potentially. It's like ten, tens of thousands of people. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Who have, who have this. Yeah. 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 With it's millions. Um, there's millions of people on these drugs. Um, so, well, great. Um, I want to thank you so much again. It's been a pleasure talking to you and really excited to, to read all the publications coming out soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WittDuringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.